Go ahead, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 11, John 11. If you have a device, you can go uh, ESV version, so you can stay with us. Well, I can tell you this, I love to preach, and I'm going to miss this for sure. Um, It's also going to be nice not to preach for a little bit and kind of recharge so I don't keep using the same illustrations over and over and over again at the risk of humiliating my wife, you know, every Sunday. Um, John chapter 11. Well, we have a, just a mountain of a passage to get through today. So I'm just going to pick right up. I'm going to read it. We have 44 verses that I'm going to get through today. And uh, cause I know that that's probably what all the mothers would prefer. So um, that's what we're doing. John chapter 11, verse one. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Lazarus is their brother. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, and you gotta love Thomas, I just added that. Let us also go that we may die with him. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. In verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know, I knew that you, were, you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him, and let him go. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Jesus confuses and he confounds his friends in this passage by raising his friend Lazarus from the dead and proving that he has divine power over life and death. Let me talk about baseball for one second here, all right? Um, guy named Billy Bean who's general manager of the Oakland A's. Got Kyle, I already got Kyle. I got Kyle right here with me on this illustration and all I said was Billy Bean. But Billy Bean was the general manager of the Oakland A's back in the early 2000s and he came up with a system of recruiting and assembling a baseball team. He came up with a mathematical system for how to recruit and assemble a baseball team by using lesser known and really cheaper players in order to create a competitive ball club. Now, when Billy Bean did this, it was, it was new. If you know anything about baseball, you know that it's just steeped in tradition. And for some of you, that drives you up the wall because the game hasn't changed in like 200 years. And for some of you, you're like, no, it doesn't need to change. It's perfect as it is. I don't mind spending 15 hours a day watching an entire game, right? Some of you love that, right? Um, so there's always been this debate. Do we make rules? Do we change it? Do we make it a little quicker? Um, Billy Bean was somebody who said the game needs to change. I want to change it from the inside out. Um, everybody was critical of the method and the method in the beginning looked like it was a, just an incredible failure until they started winning. And eventually won 20 games in a row, which at the time broke the American League record uh, for most games won in a row. But here, here was what was at the heart of it. At the heart of it was was a guy named Billy Bean who had a love for baseball, who had a desire to change the game by creating a way for teams with smaller budgets to have any kind of chance to win against the big budget teams like the Yankees and the Dodgers and some of the, these, these big ball clubs. Billy's method of recruiting, it was unprecedented, right? It absolutely confused and confounded the baseball world. But Billy had a perspective. Billy had a perspective that other teams would adopt only after 
they saw the success of the Oakland A's in 2002. Now, what I want to do and how that's related is I want us to look at three ways, given what we just read, that Jesus responds to the death of his friend Lazarus, some of which will confuse and confound us, but then they will also give us at the same time greater perspective and greater insight into Jesus himself, right? Into his identity, into his divinity, into his humanity. Sometimes we, th- we, we, we always wanna have a bigger piece of the pie and a bigger, bigger portrait of the, of the picture that God is painting than we, than we usually do. So we stand back and we're like, I don't see it. I can't see it. It doesn't make any sense. I either don't see God moving or I see something moving and it don't look like God, right? And so with our own limited view and our own, and our own eyes, right, and our own eyesight, we don't realize what it is that God might be doing at any given moment. That is an incredibly important thing for Christians, for the church, for us to realize. That is an incredibly important thing for us to step back honestly and remind ourselves of every day so that we have that kind of perspective that yes, indeed, God is on the move. What I can't see, well, that should be pretty normal, right? Because my eyesight is super limited. And this this is what we see happening today. And the first thing that we see Jesus doing as he learns of his friend Lazarus is that Jesus waits to act. And it's really bizarre when you read the passage and you see all these different places where like Jesus keeps pumping the brakes and they're like, Lazarus is sick. You got to go tend to Lazarus. You got to go see if you can heal Lazarus. And Jesus is just like, you know what? We're good. We're good. He waits to act. Jesus knows that Lazarus is going to die. He says in verse four that the illness doesn't lead to death. And then he delays two days before arriving. So the first question is, why did Jesus wait? Secondly, what did he mean that Lazarus' illness wouldn't lead to death when clearly it did lead to death, right? What does he mean by that? Well, first off, Jesus tells us why he waited in verse 4. He said, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Secondly, This is important. Jesus wasn't seeing Lazarus as a dead man, but as a resurrected man, right? Jesus was speaking of what only Jesus had the power to see. And we see how grieved Martha and Mary are that Jesus waited. They don't understand. They don't have the ability to understand, just like we don't understand when God waits to act in our lives. Just like we don't understand when we are just literally in the middle of horrific seasons of waiting in our lives and we stand back and we go, what the heck, God? We just don't get it. We don't understand what he's up to. We can't see the nuances. We can't, we can't trace the movement of his hand, right? But what a helpful reminder to us when we feel like Jesus is taking his own sweet time with something that we feel is a matter of life and death. And here's the thing, sometimes it is a matter of life and death. This reminds us that everything that happens in our life, according to what Jesus told his disciples, is a glory of God issue. 
everything that happens in your life, the first, like the, the premier, the supreme, the big narrative, the thing that's, that's going to need to take precedence over everything in terms of how we see what happens in our life, what unfolds in our life, the results of the decisions we make is it's a glory of God issue. And how is this going to give glory to God? That's what God is concerned with, right? We think like Martha and Mary did, like the disciples did, how can this be happening, right? I don't understand. I don't deserve this. God must not be very real. He must not be very caring. He must not be very loving. And all the while, he is waiting so that he will be made to look more glorious. Whether he changes the situation or changes us through the situation, or both. He does both sometimes. Jesus waits to act because, listen, there is something bigger going on than we can see or comprehend within our finite, limited mind. There's always something going on that we can't see. So we are we're, we're set, to, we're set to hop on a flight today uh, to South Carolina, uh, to, to do an, an event with some other pastors and wives. And we wake up this morning and I heard a gasp out of Melissa, right? She's there, she has one spoon in her oatmeal. And I'm like, oh no, is something in the oatmeal that's not supposed to be in the oatmeal, you know? She has her phone, she goes, ah! I'm exaggerating it, but it was close. Um, <laughs> and I go, oh my gosh, what's in that oatmeal, you know? Because I was gonna take a bite of the oatmeal. I didn't, before I knew we had the candy. And, uh, and she goes, our flight was just canceled. And, uh, you know, sometimes I probably need to react stronger than I do, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a classic non-reactor. I went, oh, we'll just find another flight. It's cool. Anyway, so what do you think? You know, and she's like, oh, my gosh, what's wrong with you? And um, I said, well, let's just check. We'll just find another flight, right? And so she reminded me on our drive down here that uh, on our last sabbatical in 2018, uh, our flight got canceled. Our flight was canceled the very opening day. You know, and so you just go, um, you just go, okay, Lord, uh, you... You just wanted that flight to be canceled. I don't know why. Uh, maybe it's because I can enjoy a few more waffles at the end of the service. I, I don't know. Um, but there's a reason why it, like, there is, it, it's hard to imagine and believe, but this is what we want to, this is, this is how clearly we want to believe the words of scripture, right? I want to believe that there is a reason why that flight was canceled and we just got a later flight out, right? There's a reason why that happened. Now, is there some big cosmic reason why that happened? Is there some like crazy thing that's going to happen? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I, it's not later yet. Right. But, but I do know that at one point it caused us on our drive, on our literal like 31 second drive from our house to this church. Right. Because we live close. Um, it, it caused us to say, you know what? The Lord. And we said these words. The Lord is in control. If it was only for that, that was a glory of God issue. Because by saying and acknowledging he knows what he's doing, he's in control, that flight got canceled, it's not Delta, it's God. And, and Delta too, right? <laughs> and whether we ever use Delta again, I don't know. Um, but, it's a, but it's a glory of God issue. And by us acknowledging God, he was given more glory than if we would have just got on that flight. Isn't that amazing, right? When you think about it like that. And we want to think about it like that. You want to go that granular in your life. We don't always do that. We had a good morning, right? With the canceled flight, acknowledging God in it, right? So don't, don't think of us like that. 
David says in Psalm 27, listen to what he says. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your hearts take courage. Wait for the Lord. Jesus wasn't thinking of Lazarus, the dead man. He was thinking of Lazarus, the resurrected man. But Lazarus had to die in order to be resurrected, right? And in our own lives, sometimes something good has to die, has to change, has to shift in order for something glorious to emerge. I don't want to be flippant about that because there's a lot of pain in that sentence when something has to change or something has to pass for something to emerge. But this is why Jesus waits to act. And this is why times of waiting are so incredibly difficult for us. They challenge us, they refine us, because we can only see what is good instead of what is glorious, which is why waiting is so good for us. It moves us from the good to the glorious. Let me tell you something sobering but hopeful um, if you're a Christian. Waiting always leads to life. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Interesting what David says next. Wait for the Lord. Leading, waiting always leads to life. And when we see it in that light, it makes sense why God makes us wait. And it causes us to ask this question, what in your life do you see God waiting to act on? How much greater will your strength and your courage and your perseverance be if you endure through the waiting? It's funny because nowhere in scripture do we see God saying, and I want you to like the waiting, by the way. He knows the waiting is hard. So he's not asking us to like the waiting. He's asking us to love God who perseveres, who, who allows us to persevere through the waiting so that our hearts can be turned to greater worship, right? Here's the second, second thing that we, we see um, in, in how Jesus responds to the death of Lazarus is that he weeps over death. Jesus waits to act, but then he weeps and he weeps over death. For all intents and purposes, it's an ill-advised move for Jesus and his disciples to go back to Judea since the last time he was there, the Jews tried to stone him, right? So that, I don't know, that makes sense to me, right? So the disciples, they're, they're not being unreasonable, right, when they say that to Jesus. But they also forget a few things like we do about Jesus, which is that maybe Jesus knows something that they don't. Like the fact that people picking up stones to destroy him only gets to happen if Jesus lets it happen, right? We remember in the garden, when the, remember in the garden the night before his death, when the, when the, when the entire, this infantry comes to arrest him and one of his disciples were told in, uh, in Matthew, uh, cuts off the ear of the high priest to defend Jesus, right? And Jesus says in Matthew 26, he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must uh, be so, right? So Jesus is trying to remind his disciples that, hey, guys, I, 
I need you to walk with me, wait with me, and trust me because this is leading somewhere. This is going somewhere. Um, and the things you have that are, that are near and dear to you, that are concerning to you, that's okay. But remember who you're with. Now, you're with me. You're with Jesus of Nazareth right now. And that means, that means everything. That changes everything, right? And Jesus addresses their concerns. When we look in verses 9 and 10, he just said, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in. What Jesus means here is that he's saying, hey, there's opportunities right now. There's opportunities for the light of my truth to go shining forth. And we need to take those opportunities in order to fulfill my mission of coming into the world. Let's not forget that, fellas. That's what we're doing here. But look at what happens. Jesus says, Lazarus has died. And he makes this strange statement. I think it's strange. But he says that he's glad. He's glad that he didn't get there in time so that their faith in him would increase. And it just feels like a weird way to phrase that, right? Until we realize that Jesus is not, is, is not being callous. That's not a flippant or a callous statement by Jesus. It helps remind us what Jesus knows compared with what we know. This is, Jesus is not hurried. He's not panicked, even in the face of death, right? It doesn't mean Jesus doesn't care. Listen, it doesn't mean Jesus doesn't care. We'll, we'll see in a, in a minute how much he cared. But what it means is that his care extends beyond what you and I are able to comprehend. His care goes beyond what we can even comprehend as care. You think you care? The creator of the universe cares in a way that goes even beyond the way we can comprehend care. We think if everything can just be fixed or get better now, then that must be the ideal. And sometimes it is. Sometimes Jesus works that way. But even today, just think about this. Without the death of Lazarus, we wouldn't be able to see the weeping of Jesus, which we're going to look at here, which is not only the shortest, but one of the most important verses in Scripture for us, right? As we get to verse 33, we see how deeply it tells us Jesus is moved when he sees how distraught Mary is. And he responds so emotionally to the death and the pain that sin has introduced to the world. Some, some commentators believe that, that when it says Jesus wept, that it was more like a, like a, like a, almost like a wail, like it, like it came out of, of like, almost like, his, like, the, almost like his, his gut, you know, to where it was, it was, it was passionate and it was loud and it was like a, a grief and an anguish. Other people think it was just more of a, just a gentle weeping where people could see the emotion and how deeply this affected Jesus. Whatever, whatever it was, whatever, whatever it was, um, he responds emotionally to the death and the pain that sin has introduced in the world 
which has taken the life of his friend and has affected his, his friend's two sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus feels the deep despair that it has caused them. And he is wrecked inside. So we have to ask the question of ourselves, is it, does it shock us? Is it shocking to you to think of Jesus like this? Like, like when you see the outpouring of, of emotion. And in fact, even, even the language of, of when it says he is deeply moved, when he sees Mary and Martha's response, it, it's, uh, the, the language is to show that he's, he's taken back. It, it's almost like he catches his breath is what, the, is what the original language says. Like he's so taken back by their emotion. He's so deeply affected by it, right? I think it's shocking for us to imagine Jesus like this. I think we still see a stoic Jesus, right? I, I, I think we still see a Jesus that we just think, hey, God's in under control. He knows what's going to happen. Omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, you know, just kind of like a guy, you know, strong leader type that, you know, is, is, is not going not gonna to be so deeply, you know, torn apart the way that we are when things happen. And you might even think, why, why would he weep like this if he knew what was going to happen? He's God, isn't he? It's interesting how we think of God. It's interesting that we think of God being devoid of emotion over things that grieve us without remembering that grief is a gift that we've received from God as his image bearers. The reason why we have been given the ability to grieve is because God can grieve, right? We see that in scripture. Jesus grieves over pain, he grieves over death, he grieves over suffering. In fact, he grieves more deeply than we could possibly grieve. Because at one time he had declared everything he made was, was good in its original and perfected condition. But I, but I, love, uh, I love verse 36, when the, when the Jews see how Jesus responds, and what do they say? They say, see how he loved him. And, you know, we, we should imagine Jesus responding the same way when it, when it comes to, you know, some of the sorrowful circumstances that, that we're faced with that come upon us. You know, if somebody could see Jesus when you experience just a life-altering sickness or a death in your family, they would be able to say, see how much... He loves them. They would see that in Jesus as he responds to the things that you are dealing and have dealt with. And we should let this help us understand just how compassionately Jesus understands our pain in this life. We think because he doesn't always eliminate it, he must be ambivalent to it. He must not care so much about it. Or he must just be like, hey, you guys, figure it out, suck it up, right? But his response to Lazarus tells, him, tells us a different story. It tells us the opposite of how we can think about Jesus. So Jesus waits to act. Jesus weeps over death. These things confuse and they confound us. And then the third thing and the final thing we see is that Jesus wakes the dead. Right? Jesus wakes the dead. In verse 39, John says... Martha, the sister of the dead man. He could have just said Lazarus right there, 
but he says dead man. It's interesting that John phrased it this way because he's, 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 he's letting us know something about Lazarus. He wants us to be clear on something here and that this was a man in a tomb that smelled like death because he was really dead. He'd been dead four days. What a horrible thing to read on Mother's Day, I'm sorry. Um, I didn't write it. Uh, but, but here's the thing, this wording doesn't leave any, any room for reinterpretation, right? Um, and it's important because what Jesus does here is he, he breaks some laws. He breaks some natural laws of science. He performs a supernatural act. We are a people and a church that believes in the supernatural power of God. We've got to embrace that, right? We embrace that. It's difficult living in an age of science and reason, right? That's hard. But we believe in the supernatural power of God. So the, the one who created the laws of science can break through the laws of science. But what we see here is a precursor to his own death and resurrection, which is another supernatural act that, you know, can make us feel uncomfortable. How is this possible, we think? Well, what is impossible with man is possible with God. The question for us is always, will we believe as far as we can see or will we believe as far as God can see? That's, that's the question. Jesus wakes the dead. And he also wakes our hearts to believe that if we ask him. This is the perspective of those who, who grow in their spiritual maturity. This, this has to be our perspective. This has to be our growing perspective, right? As we grow, as we mature in the things of God, we believe these things. We believe in the supernatural power of Jesus Christ, right? Maturity is slow. We take a lifetime. Our faith increases like it did with these disciples. And we're so often submerged in unbelief as we mature, right? Notice Jesus says, take away the stone. And there's a hesitation, right? They don't just take away the stone right away. And that hesitation is at the heart of unbelief, right? Jesus says in verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? The natural outcome of, of belief is that. It's seeing God's glory. It's seeing who God is. It's seeing what God can do. Jesus lifts up his eyes. He prays. And you know what? I wonder what everybody was thinking in that moment when he prays. Because unbelief does something to us. Unbelief always leaves us with low expectations and limited imaginations. Can God really act? Does God really weep over these hard things? Can Jesus really raise the dead, we say in our unbelief? And Jesus very simply responds with, Lazarus, come out. And like a mummy, still wearing all of those wrappings, right? Lazarus comes walking out of the tomb like some outtake from a horror movie, right? You got to visualize that. Use some imagination with that. Jesus says, unbind him. 
And with these words, you know what we have? We have an unbelievable illustration for all who have been saved by Jesus, right? We are unbound by the resurrection and life of Jesus to resurrection and life with Jesus. It's crazy. It's crazy all the metaphors, all the illustrations here. It's crazy when you think the way Jesus orchestrated this whole thing, how confusing it was, how confounding it was. And he gets to this final point where he calls a dead man out of a dark tomb, still dressed up like a mummy, and says, unbind him. This guy's going to live the rest of his life, not until he dies again, but that's a whole other thing, right? Martha says in verses 23 through 24, before Lazarus is raised, she says, I know you can do something, Jesus. I know that at the end of the age, I know Lazarus will be resurrected. I believe. But Jesus confounds Martha's beliefs. He says, Martha, you're not getting this. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes though he dies will live. There's something greater going on here. There's something deeper going on than what we can see if we believe through the eyes of Jesus who wakes the dead. Do you believe this? That's what Jesus asks. That's the question for us as we close. Do we believe Jesus? Waiting leads to life. Believing leads to glory. And glory is where we see Jesus. If you're confused and confounded by the outcomes of your life, and you are, you are like I am. Let these passages encourage you this morning because number one, Jesus is on the move in your life. Jesus is on the move in your life right now. Two, your eyes do not and will never see the whole story. Three, the story he's writing for you is moving you towards glory. It's everything we see unpacked and unfolded here in the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Imagine what you will see if you trust in the Lord with all of your heart and stop leaning on your own understanding. Imagine what will happen to you Imagine what will get redirected inside of you as you hold to that. And dude, you're going to hold to that some days in ways that your hands feel like a million miles away from that truth. And in those moments, you're just being held. You're just being held. Those days when you are not bound and determined to believe that truth because it's so painful. Jesus has you because he has unbound you already. That's the hope for us today. The resurrection of Jesus means that you can have a transformed perspective. It means that all of your hard and difficult and even faithless moments are reminders that your waiting is leading to life. The disciples were waiting to see the Roman Empire get overthrown so that they could start living the life that they wanted to live 
as a nation. And Jesus said, I have a different kind of waiting for a different kind of life for you. And he said, this is how I want you to remember that life. This is how I want you to persevere in the waiting. I want you to do this symbolic act. I want you to eat of bread, drink of some juice, drink of some wine. We do juice here. And I want you to remember why I came. I want, to re- I want you to remember what it is and who it is that you're waiting for. I want you to remember that you can persevere because the grave and death didn't conquer me. I want you to remember that you have been unbound. You are not slaves to your sin any longer. The chains of sin do not hold you down. You are like Lazarus, dressed like a mummy, coming through that tomb for the whole world to see the majesty, the power, and the light of Jesus. That is who you are. That is the reality of who you are. That's what we're going to do here. So when you, when you eat that bread, when you drink that cup, you remember the death of Christ. You remember the resurrection of Christ. You remember that just like Lazarus, you have been called out of death. And because that's true, you can wait with a renewed perspective. You can have hope. Your despairs don't finish you. There's something bigger going on. You have the light of Jesus. I'm going to pray. Give us a time to be reflective. If you are not somebody who has come into the Christian faith, who has repented of your sins and trusted Christ for salvation, we ask that you just hold off taking communion. This is, this is for people who have been saved. Um, but here's the hope is that we want you to be among this family of saved sinners. So I'm going to give us an opportunity for that right now as we pray and reflect for a minute or two before the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we have such a clear illustration of your grace and your power in raising the dead. You've raised us, Lord, from spiritual death. And Lord, we thank you that even though you confuse and you confound us because we don't have your mind, we don't understand your ways, we can't always trace your hand, but we trust your heart, Lord. And you even help us when we, our tank of trust is, is low. So, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that when we look at this story, we can have so much hope and encouragement. We can be filled with joy. Um, and as we take this bread and this cup, we can be reminded that you called us out of darkness into your glorious light. We know that our waiting, it leads to life. Increase our faith, Lord. Um, we are like the disciples. We are like Martha. We are like Mary. We just, we see things in such a limited, with such a limited view. And, but, but we want to understand that too, Lord, when we're in places where we just don't understand. We want you to give us encouragement. We want you to help us endure and persevere when everything just looks one way. Lord, in those moments, we know that you're 
never idle, and that you, even in our pain, even in things that are prolonged, that hurt, um, just like you wept for your friend Lazarus, you stand with us. You are moved by our grief because you grieve our pain. And Lord, that's a great comfort to us because it means you're not callous, you're not cavalier. Um, you're not somebody that is so high above us that it's convenient for you to ignore. No, you, you descended down to be among us, to take our pain, to share our grief, to bear our sorrows, Lord. So Lord, we thank you for that. And as we eat of the bread and take of the cup, we pray that you would strengthen us as a church, that you would nourish us, Lord, that you would um, create greater community among us so that, Lord, we can be your empathy towards another church member. We can be your compassion and your love toward another church member. So, Lord, do that now for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.